0: Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Friday, November 4th, 2022. I am John Podhoritz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe.
1: Hi, John. Media
0: commentary columnist and AEI fellow, Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. Associate editor and author of The Rise of the New Puritans, Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. And joining us today, longtime commentary contributor, uh best-selling author of secret city and the host or one of the hosts of the new not even mad podcast james jamie kerchick hi jamie welcome hi to john the podcast. thanks for I'm, having me you bet so um we're going to get job numbers at some point during as we're as we're taping this and we'll talk about that uh word is they're not going to be great and uh that just means yet another piece of bad news for Joe Biden and the Democrats, if that if that turns out to be the case. Um, and we have been doing procriminations for the last two weeks, the, the Democrats readying themselves for a bad night on Tuesday election night. Um, but the most remarkable piece of procrimination was released yesterday by the longtime Democratic pollster and pundit Stanley Greenberg, who was Clinton's pollster, uh, famously Clinton's pollster in 1992, and um, has a particular vantage point on the Democratic Party's troubles that uh, very much comports with the present moment, which is that Democrats are not doing have have. He's been <laughs> screaming about this for ten years that Democrats are not doing enough to attract working class. Um, you know blue collar workers lower income people with a message that you know historically was very potent for them with such people from the fdr coalition onward and um this piece uh that he has released he released yesterday at the american prospect is called how democrats mishandled crime and um He basically says, look, I waited until this Thursday before, oh, yeah. So he says, um, he said, basically, uh, to be honest, I didn't want to open up this debate during the campaign when Democrats could do little to address it. That is why I'm writing this article now being published right before the election. So he wants to get on the record before the election that he saw the tsunami coming against the Democrats. And it's a stunning piece because it is, a, it is an indictment of the Democratic Party's failure to understand where the electorate is on the very simple matter of crime. In other words, if you're a politician and you're running for office, you should probably be against crime. Seems, like, seems, pretty, seems pretty obvious, right? And yet the Democratic Party decided to stop being against crime. And according to him, he tested all kinds of messages, which we'll get to. And if Democrats now, I don't really believe this to be the case, because I don't think you can just message your way out of policy choices that that have real world consequences. But he's like, if Democrats just said this or they just said that they actually beat Republicans uh, or those are more favorable messages or something like that. Uh, And I'm just going to quote one thing and then go to you guys. Okay. Uh, I wrote after the 2020 election, says Stanley Greenberg, that we just witnessed a race war where Donald Trump did everything possible to heighten racial conflict and focus the country on the breakdown of law and order and rising crime in African American cities. I accepted the Democrats had no choice but to defeat Trump's racist campaign and win a mandate to address racial justice. I knew that suited Trump's advisor, Steve Bannon, who was counting on America's racism to fuel Trump's Republican Party. The battle to defeat Trump's race war, however, blinded many from seeing the priorities and needs of working class African-American, Hispanic and Asian-American voters. Those were the voters who pulled back from their historic support for Democrats. To be honest, many assume that battling long-standing racial inequities would be their top priority, but that assumption becomes indefensibly elitist when it turns out those voters were much more focused on the economy, corporate power, and
2: crime. Noah Rothman. Another piece, a bit that I thought was really interesting. Uh, on crime. He says, quote, the Democrats had so little credibility on crime that any message I tested this year against Republicans ended up losing us votes, even messages that voters previously liked. Um, Goes on to say that essentially, and I'm sort of going between the lines here, but essentially probably tested messages that resonated with Democrats, including one resonated resonated with all voters, including one um, that beat the Republican message, he said, by 10 points. But then, quote, With Democrats so out of touch on crime and the police just discussing crime cost Democrats. So I can only assume that the message that beat the Democratic message or beat the Republican message um, was tested later with voters and was when voters were primed to understand it was a Democratic message, rejected it um, just because of their partisan understanding of what that message was coming from and who it was supposed to advantage. Jamie Jamie Kerchick, you alone among
0: us on this panel worked for even the Liberal New Republic back in the day. <laughs> so with your real credibility yes. <laughs> as, a, as somebody who was there, with, worked with many liberals, had arguments with many liberals, all of that, what did you make of this idea that the Democratic Party, not just its elites, but the party itself it's almost structurally, uh, has has actively alienated uh, its base voters. It's interesting you
3: bring up the New Republic, which I think was really extremely influential in the 1990s during the Clinton administration. <clears throat> and um, Stanley Greenberg I, is a kind of relic of that era. And I would add him to a group of Clinton-era Democratic analysts who have been sounding these alarms for a while. One is Rui Teixeira who was at the Center for American Pro- Pro- uh, Progress and left a couple of months ago to go to the American Enterprise Institute. He was the sort of co-originator of the emerging democratic majority thesis.
0: With but New Republic staffer John Judas. John Judas,
3: who's, who's really a man of the old left. But Texera has been writing a great Substack for the past couple of years called the uh, Liberal Patriot, which I highly recommend. And he's been sounding the alarm on this issue, identity politics in general, telling the Democrats, get back to your bread and butter issues. Stop listening to, you know, left-wing activists and the elite media, um, and you're ignoring your working-class multiracial base. And he now he's now a colleague of our own Christine Rosen at the American Enterprise Institute. I would also add James Carville, the, the, the and Cajun, who has been lambasting faculty lounge politics of the left and has gotten into a lot of trouble for it. And now we have Stan Greenberg who's been raising, who's now raising the alarm about crime. Um, so I think that these, these Clinton era Democrats, you know, they're much reviled today. And over the past couple of years, you've seen this sort of revisionist history on the left that you know, Bill Clinton was this terrible racist uh, and he was locking up all these innocent people and they really repudiated that legacy. But one of the reasons Bill Clinton became president in 90, 1992 when it was the first democratic president in 12 years. Really, if you take out Carter, you know, which was sort of a special case after Watergate. I mean, Democrats didn't have the White House since the 1960s. It was because of crime. You had these, these Southern Democrats, Bill Clinton and Al Gore, and they ran tough on crime. Um, and I think, you know, this has been a theme of, of the commentary podcast for a while now. But I think in 2020, the, the, I think the, the Democrats mistook their win as a full scale endorsement of a kind of left-wing agenda. And they didn't realize that the, re- the main reason why Joe Biden won in 2020 was because people did not want Donald Trump. Um, and they kind of ignored you know, everything else and just thought, you know what, we have this huge mandate now. We can pursue all these progressive ideas. Um, but it was not a full embrace of their agenda. And, and because of the rhetoric that was coming out of left-wing circles in 2020 about crime, I think some people were willing to kind of ignore them because they wanted to get rid of Trump. But now they're now the Democrats are reaping the whirlwind for all that stuff, the defund the police, the kind of chaos in the cities. Um, It's now it's now coming back to bite them in the butt. And it's going to be it's going to take a lot more than just the rhetoric of the past couple of weeks. Yeah, go ahead.
1: I mean, that's the thing. It's um, yeah, sure. They have a huge messaging problem. But this isn't a messaging problem. It's an identity crisis on the left. Um, It's a sort of. Political DNA mutation that has happened among Democrats. Uh, the the very the very idea that they're they're just talking about crime hurts them is because the American people know who they are now on this issue on and on a whole host of associated issues. Um, it sort of needs a new generation. Um, I think that is the only way to be credible um, if, if, if they want to get back these some of these, some make some headway in terms of getting back these demographic groups.
2: There is um, and something that's illustrative, I think, of your, what you're talking about here, Abe. Um, there was a, an interview that Joe Biden gave to Rick Smiley where he was asked point blank, what have you done to improve African-American lives? The very first thing Joe Biden says in that interview, what goes to his head very first, is that he's uh, uh, expunged all uh, convictions for federal marijuana possession. I don't know if we're still doing problematic anymore, but the very first thing you think of when you think of how do I improve African-American lives (laughs) is that because you're all probably convicts, I expunged your conviction. If this was a Republican, or even if this was Joe Biden running for the nomination in 2019, 2020, Democrats and progressives would recognize that for what it is as a racially hostile sentiment. But the most charitable thing you can say about it, at least, is that they expect some political advantages from these DEI initiatives, from these decarcerial initiatives. They really thought that this is something that African-Americans would respond to. And look at polls on crime. What demographics are most aggravated? By crime, it's people who live in cities.
4: Well, this is this urban is a problem, and this... African
2: Americans who express a lot of apprehension about crime, not decarcerial policies, but the effects of decarcerial policies.
4: But this is another example of how I think pushed by its uh, leftly more left-leaning progressive flank, the Democrats have have stumbled. Not Abe's right. It's not just on messaging, although their messaging is terrible. It's also on policy making. So what they have said, and again, I think a lot of this was done with good intentions. It was we're going to make we're not going to incarcerate as many people. We, we 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 have too many people in prison, the prison industrial complex, it's all bad. And so what, unfortunately, they're telling people who actually want dangerous people incarcerated because those dangerous people come and live in their neighborhoods and rob them and rape them and murder them. What the message then from Democrats is, well, this is a structural issue. They go to the 30,000-foot conversation with people who every day fear walking to the bus and getting their kids on the bus and safely to school. They're telling them, well, this is about structural racism. Well, maybe it is, but you have to first make our neighborhoods safe. Look, while we were sitting here, I just got a crime alert that said someone got shot and killed right outside the Kennedy Center. That is across the street from where my son every morning is is on the river training with with his crew team. Like... In D.C., over 900 juveniles have been arrested this year for sometimes very serious crimes. In cities where people live and people have to go to work and go to school and shop in their neighborhoods, do everything in their neighborhoods, they don't feel safe. And it's African-Americans and Hispanic-Americans who live in maybe lower middle class areas in cities that feel the least safe because they're not protected. And so to tell them, well, the problem is the police, they don't believe that. They believe the problem is how the police are trained, and there's definitely truth to that but they don't want to hear a message about structural this systemic that that's not going to help them feel safer.
0: Okay. I have a a potted history of the last half century. I want to share with you guys. Cause of course, um, you know, I, I, everything that's happening today constantly reminds me of my life when I was 10, 11, 12, 13 years old living in New York city in the 1970s, when everything just started spiraling, out of control, started spiraling out of control in the 60s. But, you know, the Death Wish City, the bankrupt city, all of that. So uh, this was one of the things that gave birth to the neoconservatives was the crime spiral in New York City and the fact that the liberal establishment, limousine liberals, the people who were in radical, Tom Wolfe's radical chic were also uh, focused on sort of structural racism issues of the time in 1970 uh you know systemic racism and inequality rather than the fact that the you know that uh, that inner city neighborhoods were 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 turning into hellscapes and they were sitting in their park avenue areas you know paying off the black panthers who were doing absolutely nothing despite their reputation for being community activists were were actually making things harder and worse
3: they were serving and, school lunches they were serving right. school lunches yeah yeah though. some
0: of them were for a week you know <laughs> when the you know when the when the press came by um but when people talked about what was going on the horror and torture and nightmare that was going on in the inner cities uh the inner cities in america were very integrated there were a lot of working class whites jews catholics you know shopkeepers People worked in New York City, worked, still worked in the needle trade, stuff like that, um, who were like my grandparents who were you know in their 60s or in their 70s, and they were trapped in neighborhoods like Crown Heights, which is where my grandparents lived, that were going south really, really fast. And the focus was on the threat to them. Right. Just they were they were the people who were uniquely being tortured, couldn't leave their apartments, were getting mugged, were getting all of this. And so there was this focus on how then there was white flight. And then, for example, in New York City, a million people left New York City between 1970 and 1980. They were all white. They all went to the nearby suburbs and um, and uh, the population of the city dropped by a seventh in, in 10 years. Now there are no white people left in majority, ble- in, I mean, not no white people, but all the white people that are left are the limousine liber- liberals. That's who's left. You know, it's Leonard Bernstein's grandchildren who are living and talking about Black lives and putting Black Lives Matter on their signs in, uh, in Sagaponic and Wellfleet and places like that. Um, who's left in the inner cities are minorities almost exclusively, right? In the, in, what we call the inner city, which is just a, which is just a sort of slang term for poor neighborhoods because uh, they're often not inner right They're So um, there's no one left there except them. And they, they were always being preyed on. They were always part of the horror of the crime wave of from 1964 to 1994 but they weren't the focus of conversation. And now there are two ways to talk about crime. One of which is to say, what are we going to do to help people black, Hispanic, and Asian, as he as 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 Stan Greenberg puts it? Uh, what are we going to do to help them get out of this? And the others say, we can't really talk about this because then we're highlighting something that looks bad for minority communities. And we're trying to help minority communities, and we're progressives, and what's really important is that you go through diversity, equity, and inclusion training at your corporation, and not let's get 10,000 more cops on the streets because crime has gone up 40%. So this is a new wrinkle, like there's nothing to hide behind. It's not like, oh, you're just saying this because you, you're doing this because of the you know classic melting pot urban ethnics that you're trying to defend and we're we're up to something else there's no there's nothing there's no cover <clears throat> the people who say that they want black lives matter in general act like they don't care about black lives in specific you know uh and and everybody who is on the bad end of that telescope knows who the people looking through the telescope are and what it is they're choosing to focus on so that's my potted history of the last 50 years it only sort of really occurred to me last night that there was no neocon movement in the black community in the 60s and 70s in some sense um because they were being ignored in uh, in, in favor of the people the essentially like the immigrants you know uh, ethnic people you know white ethnics um who who vote, who were able to vote with their feet
4: but there's also something pretty disingenuous about the structural messaging here right from the left and this is what's frustrating if you want to say that as many democrats do that the reason that crime is so much higher in for example african-american neighborhoods of uh, violent crime in particular they'll say well we have to we can't really incarcerate people that's not going to solve anything we've got to look at the root causes the root cause is poverty so we need to throw more money at that problem Fine. That's an argument. I don't happen to believe it's a good one. But if you're going to look at the causes of poverty, you have to look at family structure. You have to look at all kinds of institutional issues like crumbling public schools in these neighborhoods, lack of resources. Some of those can be solved by funding and money that's allocated to it. But a lot of those are culture problems. And if you want to talk about a culture of white supremacy, you also have to talk about cultures in other communities that foster and cover for behavior that is violent and harmful and that whose body count is not white people. But that's now race.
3: That's not- how racist. That's so racist to say exactly. You racist, can't even cite so.
4: statistics. Citing crime statistics will get you labeled a racist. You can't even cite the facts about crime even though the victims are overwhelmingly African American of, of a lot of this crime like e- and i that's where I really get angry at the white progressive messaging, um, and it is a messaging issue. They know what's happening, and they cannot pretend not to know, and their solutions have been tried and have thus far failed. So we need to try different things. And there are lots of creative criminal justice reforms that both get dangerous people off the streets and invest in communities and do all kinds of other inter- violence interruptions. There are things at work. We need to do those John. Things.
3: John, I think I think I need to take this opportunity to pitch a commentary essay to you. It's called my My white progressive people problem and ours.
0: <laughs> just, know, I have a, an analogy just, just hit me, which is, you know, I don't know anything about how to fight forest fires, right? I know nothing. So I, I stipulate that. But I know that like 20 years ago, when we learned that the hottest idea in fighting forest fires was the let it burn idea, right? There's this idea you let it burn, right? Don't go in, don't interdict, don't do because for forests have, this is a natural thing, and forests will burn themselves, so whatever. Again, I don't know whether this is whether this actually counter count it's counterintuitive, right? You want to put a fire out, you don't want to let it burn. They're like, No, let it burn. Okay. So in this case. Uh, there's a problem. The problem is that there has been this incredibly successful 30-year effort to uh, decrease the amount of crime in the United States, and it it gets better and better and better. And like the 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 effect on on cities is stark and dramatic and startling. Jamie and and uh, Christine both um, live live in D.C. Um, Christy, I think you got there in the mid-90s. Uh, so you weren't there in the in the end of the Marion
4: Barry, but it was Barry the end of the Marion Barry. It was the end, right?
0: But I mean, you know, DC was also a city that depopulated itself, like New York. Um, and then over the course of the next 15, 20 years, it became a kind of urban playground. It was reconstituted itself, the downtown was spiffed up, young people flooded in. Um, you know, turn these neighborhoods into kind of again, like like playgrounds of youth and fun and all this. Um, and in you know, people started to forget how important it was that the, how important the crime drop was in making all of that possible. And the complaint was that this was uh, uniquely disproportionately done on the backs of Black people through incarceration, and that there were so many. African-Americans being incarcerated that, uh, you know, essentially they were, they'd been like shipped off somewhere else just to clean things up and that that wasn't fair and it wasn't right. And we had too many people in jail and that let's pursue a strategy of let it burn. People are criminals, but it's like worse to put them in jail because it creates, you know, fatherlessness. Well, I don't even know what you want to call it. So let them stay, you know don't throw them into jail for committing a misdemeanor let them stay let it burn it'll burn itself out and just as the let it burn thing to my mind seems like there were way more forest fires and it's not because of global warming it's because there was the, there's this ideological commitment to a firefighting strategy that is seems on the surface of it to be insane saying, oh, look, here's a lot of criminals. Here's what we should do to save them and their
4: community. Let them out of jail. Most of those people, by the way, serving long sentences who are in state prisons are serving long sentences for violent crime, rape, murder, uh, assault. These are not not people who got caught with a little bit of, with a baggie of weed. That is not, and that is the message. That's another story that's been told that people who live in these neighborhoods know not to be true because you release violent people back into their neighborhoods they're not all reformed. Some are, some are. And that's actually the yeah. hope is that there's some reform, but most go back to doing what they did before. Look at the rape right. that just happened in New York. The guy had 25 previous arrests and offenses, including for sexual assault. He just, he, he, he raped a woman who was out jogging the other morning. That's horrifying. He should never have been on the street.
0: Right. So I'm just, that's, that's, so Jamie on your not even mad podcast, I believe your second episode, you have a, you have a go-to uh, among the three of you, that's you, Mike Pesca, and Virginia Heffernan, on the subject of, of of crime, and um it's pretty um it's a pretty vivid it's a pretty vivid argument, I would say.
3: Yeah, you know, it's uh, it's a conversation among three people, and we often don't agree. We try to do it civilly, but this week we did have a pretty heated uh, discussion about this issue. A lot of it was over statistics and whatnot. Virginia was just, was disputing the statistics with Mike and was generally arguing that the reaction to what's going on with the crime wave is an overreaction and that the numbers don't justify the political heat that's being generated around this now. And I just think it's in general a bad strategy for politicians to basically lecture voters on what they shouldn't and shouldn't think. And that if, if voters are claiming or saying that they're worried about crime, you can throw all these statistics about, you know, to them and say, well, it's only a you know, 10% increase from 2020 and whatnot. People don't hear that. They're not, they're not pollsters. They're not looking at the cross tabs and whatnot. Um, and I, you know, I can only speak of my own experience. I live in a nice neighborhood of Washington, DC, Calorama. Okay, I'm only a couple blocks from where the Obamas live. Granted, I'm on the wrong side of the tracks of Calorama. I'm in the more downscale section of Calorama, but still I can see it in my neighborhood. Okay, I haven't, and in fact, I was, you know, my, my apartment was vandalized in the summer of 2020. And just walking around, you see a decline in the quality of life. And a lot of these things are not perhaps measured in crime statistics. Like, I don't think homelessness or vagrancy or, you know, the number of crazy people on the street shouting and acting in intimidating fashion. I don't think that's something that's captured in crime statistics, but it's definitely a feeling that you get. And I would be mocked, I'm sure, by progressives for saying, "Oh, you know, it's all about vibes, right? The vibes are off." Well, I'm so sorry, but you know, most people I talk to who live in cities across the country report the same things. And the Democrats can can you know whistle past this all they like and say that we're just exaggerating it, but they're gonna they're gonna reap the whirlwind on Tuesday. Even though crime isn't really a federal issue at the end of the day, it is a local right. issue.
0: Totally. You know now, here's what's. In, I just, I just wanted to cite the thing that you, you both of you were talking about. So uh, this week, and Virginia Heffernan on the Not Even Mad podcast cites this, and it's a thing. It was an op-ed by Justin Fox on Bloomberg called "New York City is a lot safer than small town America," and you will notice that sort of anti-crime enforcement types like Radley Balko, the weird libertarian anti-cop guy who just got fired by the Washington Post, Radley Balco, you know, says, you know, it's more dangerous in rural Oklahoma than it is on the streets of New York City. And the the way you prove this is with these kind of with this uh, statistical profile. And it your jaw because dr- yeah, okay, you want to have I was in my class, you want to have a late night dorm room debate is New York City safer than you know, Tulsa or not even Tulsa, but some small town in Oklahoma. Well, let's just put it this way. The numbers may be X, but what is what is the likelihood of you being in your house uh, in uh, rural Oklahoma and a bullet flying through the window and hitting you in while you're sitting in your chair? You know how many times that happened in New York and in D.C. the last, you know, I don't know, two years? Probably in each city, there were you know, incidental shootings of people because of gang violence outside city you know, like 50 or 60 cases, something like that. I mean, it's not that at any given moment you couldn't be hit by a car that was being driven by a drunk or whatever, however you want to calculate crime. you Forget politicians. Like, what about an entire intellectual tendency like liberalism? How does liberalism survive as a, as a vivid and living philosophy about how to live and how to run societies and all of that when liberals, not politicians, are telling people that they cannot believe the evidence of their own eyes and the, what they know they don't know and that they're all being tricked by Republicans who are suddenly running ads on on local TV? Who watches local TV, by the way? That's, you know, how are Republicans doing this? Really? I thought everybody was now unplugged and, like, just watching Netflix. Like, you know, I've seen three ads during my, you know, during this year of 2022. I know hundreds of millions of dollars are being spent on local TV ads. But that's not what it used to be. It's like 50% of the audience is no longer there. Anyway. So
1: the thing is... If you remember in 2021, liberal politicians, they kind of got the message, Uh, a lot of them, surprising ones, London Breed, San Francisco. They said they 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 sort of they they got the memo regarding messaging. They said crime is enough bullshit or whatever that you like, like, you know, surprising profanity laced, like angry tirades against how they're not going to take crime anymore. That's the easiest part is to just denounce it. Um, They didn't stop saying America's a racist country, white supremacy uh, 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 sets up this system that 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 creates uh, minority criminals and so on. They did absolutely nothing below the surface. They simply denounced the end product. Um, When that didn't work, then they turned to, well, this is all a conspiracy. This is all people telling you, Republicans telling you, paying for ads, telling you that crime is bad.
0: Can I can I give you the perfect perfect example of this yesterday or the day before yesterday? So New York's mayor, Eric Adams, there's a tweet uh, or an Instagram or a TikTok or, you know, uh, on all platforms, a a bit of film footage that says, you know, New Yorkers are, we're cleaning up the subways or something like that. And it's Adams on a subway car in a jacket that says NYC mayor on it cleaning up garbage on a subway car as the subway is moving so first of all the issue with the subways is is garbage an issue in the subways yes is garbage the leading issue in the subways no leading issue in the subways is people are being pushed onto tracks by 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 psychotics and you know having their phones stolen on the platforms and stuff like that but garbage is an issue on the subways but it's in exactly the reverse way If there's garbage on the subway and you don't clean up the garbage, that's broken windows. If people feel free to spew garbage on the subway train, cleaning it up is the 911 policing of that. It happens, and then you go in and you try to make it okay by cleaning it up afterwards. What he needs to do is make it so that people don't throw garbage on subway trains to begin with. So he is now saying there's nothing I can do to stop the garbage, but I can in some ridiculous way clean up after the people who are making the city unlivable. I'll do what I can to clean to clean up the crime scene. But don't look to me to prevent the crime scene from happening. And that's a metaphor.
2: But if it was a metaphor. It's the grossest train I've, train car I've ever seen. There were the amount of garbage that it was picking. It was like a hefty bags worth of garbage. Right.
0: Well, because because of course it was a, it was preposterous because they right. threw the he garbage. He
2: also wasn't on. wearing the gloves. Metaphor is wasn't this wearing train gloves. is a trash pile. <laughs> right. <laughs> right.
4: No, but uh, fair, look, fair of it. This goes to the, the broken windows thing is a good analogy for this because fair evasion is the beginning of the crack in that in that facade, right? So you let people jump the turnstiles, cheat on paying. Then it becomes clear that, well, what else can I get away with? And there are plenty of people, human nature being what it is, who will take that as a green light to test the limits even more. I mean, for those of us who've raised toddlers, there's that moment where you're like, like don't touch that. And you just watch them. They just can't help themselves. Yeah. They're going to touch it. So there are always going to be people who push those boundaries. And that's why you want to stop that from uh, at the beginning, at the early stages, you say, you know what? No, civil society requires that we enforce even these small rules, because that works and redounds to the benefit of civic health for everyone.
0: Okay, so uh, let's talk about the holidays are upon us. Got holidays. We got presents we got to buy. You know, it would be a fantastic present. Get people beautiful, comfortable, uh, soft, uh, elegant bedding from Bowling Branch. The most luxurious and the softest organic cotton sheets from Bowling Branch. Made from the finest 100% organic cotton threads, they make a difference you can truly feel night after night. You wash them, they get softer. They're beautiful. They come in nine colors. Um, they they're made. You know they're free from toxins. They're free from pesticides. They're free from harsh chemicals, and they're made by artisans, not by machines, who earn the pay and respect they deserve. Designs and colors for every bedroom style, mattress size, unmatched softness, and a 30-night worry-free guarantee with free shipping and returns on all orders. And here's the thing. If you want to order a gift of Ball and Branch sheets for your loved ones, the signature sheets come wrapped and ready in a beautiful holiday gift box. Your gifts will look as special as they feel, and it creates an unboxing experience your loved ones will never forget. So bring home a better night's sleep this holiday season with Ball and Branch Bedding. For a limited time, get 20% off your first set of sheets and free shipping when you use promo code commentary at com. That's B-O-L-L-A-N-D-B-R-A-N-C-H dot com promo code commentary. All right. So I promised that we were going to talk about the jobs numbers and they came in and they're better than people expected. They're not explosively great, though maybe they couldn't be explosively great because unemployment, you know, remains. Uh, Remains pretty low, right? I mean, it's incredibly low. Unemployment
2: ticked up by two tenths of a percent. I'm looking at this BLS report and I can't see why. Labor force participation rate is static. Uh, Long term unemployment rate is static. Uh, And um, so they, but the numbers are good. They are good. They came in at uh, 261, they expected 205,000. September's numbers were revised up from 263 to 315. And the CNN pushes out this alert that's like, well, the Fed's tightening is working. No, it's not. It's the opposite of working. Demand is still high, really high. People are still hiring. People are still buying. People are still earning wages.
4: Except at Twitter.
2: This is
0: the
2: opposite <laughs> of what monetary policy
0: is from everybody at Twitter getting, getting their, getting their uh, walking papers by, via email, which is really great. Oh, go ahead. Sorry.
2: Never mind. Yeah, well, there's a class action suit there, too, and they probably deserve to win it. Um, but yeah, nevertheless um this suggests that the economy is still hot enough that the fed's tightening is not working which is going to push them to do even more i mean that's an interesting point
0: i mean the reason that the unemployment rate ticks up when you know when when uh, everything else is static supposedly is that people are getting off the or getting off the bench and looking for work and, and are therefore rather than being out of the stats entirely are raising the unemployment rate because they're, they're about to get a job uh, effectively. That's and right. So, and I don't see that in this report. Right. Well, I, again, I, so, okay. So let's, might be true though. I just, it right. just came out. I mean, uh, so what you're talking about is a, is, you know, is a, the complicated interplay of, you know, of, 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 uh, News that nominally should be good and is good and then also doesn't doesn't suggest a long term solution to the larger problem, you know, which is so to there are 260,000 new jobs. But in fact, like the economy is, at least as we calculated, pretty close to full employment. And so employment is not the problem here. Right. Employment is not the American problem. The problem is the declining purchasing power of the 97, 96.5% of people who already had jobs. Um, you don't want to say that job creation is bad. It's never bad. It's always good that somebody, you know, somebody who wasn't working before gets a job. Um, but the mo- more important number, I guess, in this case, is that uh, we have um, real wages up uh, in one year by 4.7%. So you look at that and you go, you know what? Like that's fantastic. You know, it's been it's been an incredibly long time since real wages just sort of, you know, went up in a in a in a seriously measurable way, right? But that's still almost that's half of uh that's half the inflation rate. So you're up 5% but you're, you know, I'm rounding these numbers, right? So you're up five percent, but you're the the inflation rate is nine percent. So effectively, your purchasing power has declined over the course of a year. You're not in better shape. You're in worse shape. You could you could have been in even worse shape. And I guess our guess is, as people are saying, that if we end up in a recession next year, um, that happens uh, as part of the effort to choke off. The inflation rate, it's going to take a while for the inflation rate to get choked off even in a recession. And then you could really have people who are a not getting wage growth, losing jobs and losing purchasing power all all at the same time. So that's that's why this isn't. uh... So here's my question politically. The Biden White House, as we I think have now established, is unbelievably tone deaf and, and like doesn't really know how to how to sell itself and all of that. So what 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 do you think is going to happen over the next three days in relation to the economy? Are they going to go around saying, "There, look at this: two hundred and sixty one thousand jobs created."
4: He's Biden's already doing that. He's been on the trail this week. He's been saying inflation is down and the economy's well, <clears throat> growing. He's lying. He's just lying. And he also he
3: also look he's he did a great job increasing the social security benefit. Right, <laughs> we have got to give him credit for that.
0: <laughs> yeah, that, I just don't know. I, I'm 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 I'm, you know, it's like. Uh, as things are bad, and this is Stanley Greenberg, basically said, "Look, it's we're baked. I can publish this piece that we talked about at the beginning of the podcast. Uh, you know, on the Thursday before the election, because it's baked in the cake. Whatever is now going to happen is going to happen. My piece isn't going to have any effect on the results on Tuesday. Whereas maybe two weeks earlier, a month earlier, it would have been sort of something that would have been put in a blender that would have caused a Democratic identity crisis, and it would have been too late." based on what he said for us to for this even to matter. And so I would have been blamed for the downward spiral of the Democrats. But now, you know, we're screwed. How
2: refreshingly healthy it is for somebody to acknowledge how little influence they have over the national debate. So many of the people who participate in national political debates think they have they they contribute in some small way to outcomes and just don't say the things that they know to be true or honest. Because it could have a bad political effect on the outcome. You don't matter at all. Your tweets don't matter. Your articles don't matter. The history, you know, the arc of uh, the trajectory of our political development is is going to progress whether you write the thing that's true and honest or not. Just say what you know to be true. Let the chips fall where they may. Oh, Noah, you, you naive. I know you, it, was, it was wholly I, innocent. It was. You. I appreciate the the acknowledgement of your own impotence here. It's very healthy. Uh, this is why I love what Elon Musk is doing on Twitter. I think I
0: mentioned this the other day, but I just continue to enjoy this notion of of paying ninety six dollars a year to have a blue check because Musk is absolutely right. The blue check system came into play solely so that people uh, would know that the person who is tweeting was the person since you could like literally, and somebody did once like start a tw- Twitter account called John Podhoritz, right? So uh you know that the Twitter account that was called John Podhoretz isn't John Podhoretz because John Podhoretz's Twitter account has a blue check mark by it, right? That's it's very simple. That's all it was really for. And then it became a status symbol. Well, people should pay for status symbols and the outrage that has been greeted by you know, if you're going to, you know, buy a Mercedes, you pay more for a Mercedes than you do for a Nissan Sentra, right? I mean, it's like, is there even a Nissan Sentra anymore? Is that, am I like dating myself? This is like a Datsun, you know, it's more than a Datsun or a Yugo anyway. Um, so it's great because it's like, okay, you want status of a blue check and you're a person for whom you seem to think this matters so pay $8, pay me $8 a month for it. Let's see if it's worth it to you. And the funny thing is the people who are raging about this and people are raging about this are proving Musk's point, which is they're so offended at the thought that they should have to pay for this who, entry in who's who rather than, you know get it for free. And then like Mike, Mike, Mike McFall, the former uh, ambassador to Russia who um, has a weirdly foolish Twitter feed is like, they should pay me. I have 850,000 followers who seem to care what I think they should, they should pay me. And uh, my nephew, Noam Bloom said on Twitter, like, so go on Substack. That's what Substack is for. Don't be on Twitter. Maybe you should do something more valuable with your time <clears throat> than hurling these comments into the void. Um, it's So it it's all like, look, all intellectual conversations are all, you know, 97% of them don't affect the, don't affect the national conversation. Individual, they don't affect the national conversation. But If you get a collective or, you know, pretty communitarian opinion and a shift in opinion, like, you know what? America stinks. Not that that's really a shift, but like the the sort of 60, we're born in sin. America's racist from the get-go. It started, it's all about race. It was only about slavery. And that opinion in three weeks becomes a dominating opinion among America's upper middle classes. And and you know, like that's important to know. So there is a collective effect if there isn't an individual effect. But the great thing about the Stanley Greenberg piece, it's an American prospect, just type in Stanley Greenberg and crime, and you'll you'll find it in Google, is that he says, We tested all these messages, and you know what? Some of them worked. Now, by the way, you can believe that or not believe it. As Abe said, like, you know, the messaging doesn't matter. And saying to people how, what if I said it to you this way? And they're like, yeah, I like that. Doesn't mean that they, that means anything like that's a, that's a, that's a, like a sugar high or something like that. But um, that he says that it, it wouldn't have mattered what, whatever argument we made, we had already lost the, you know, we were, it didn't matter whatever message we got, we'd already lost the argument. And, um, I'm very focused on what Republicans might do if they, you know, win both houses and how, uh, as I said yesterday, they may screw it all up by, you know, just going down the same path they went at the other times they won midterms and taking control part, partial control of the government. Um, But I really think, I I don't know what Democrats. So Jamie, let me turn to you. So as, as our, as our, as our uh, resident, even the liberal new Republic person, um, and your, your friends, uh, your friends on the, le- like, <clears throat> they lose this election. So, uh, crime, Republicans did a lot of commercials on crime and that's what did it. Cause there isn't really a crime rate or inflation is really transitory and the, the economy is good or something like that. Do they drop these preposterous self-justifying arguments or, or do they double down on them?
3: would you remember after 2020 abigail spanberger the uh moderate democrat from virginia in the house she was on a phone call with her fellow democratic congress people and she launched into a profanity-laced tirade about how she never wants to hear that effing phrase defund the police ever again she might lose her seat this time so she might not be around to launch into another profanity-laced tirade, but I think we are gonna hear that again. But I've been saying for a while now, there's a difference on the left between those people on the left who have to actually win and maintain political power, and those are elected officials, and the what James Carville refers to as the faculty lounge. And the faculty lounge comprises the mainstream media, the academy, the nonprofit industrial complex, um, and The former group of liberals and democrats, they need to stop listening to those people. And this goes back to our Twitter conversation. They need to get off Twitter. They need to stop spending so much time in the MSNBC green room. You know, they have to kind of, there has to be a divorce here. Maybe they can humor the faculty lounge, right? But they have to stop listening to those people because those people are destroying their electoral chances, which at the end of the day is what Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer and their caucus. All the way down to local officials, governors, and mayors and city councilors, and I just I, I have to think that at some point, just the 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 pure you know job protecting impulses of these people they want to they want to have a paycheck right they want to be employed they're not going to be employed they're going to lose their jobs representing people if they keep on listening to these whacked out ideas from the faculty lounge so I have to think at some point it's going to it's gonna, it's gonna there's, there's, there's gonna be a break, right? And you saw that in the 90s, right? With the rise of the new Democrats and Bill Clinton coming in. There was the whole sister soldier moment, by the way. But it's, you know, it's hard to imagine a sister soldier moment happening again, right? It's hard to imagine a, a, a high level democratic presidential candidate giving a speech, attacking, was it Jesse Jackson, it was at the Rainbow Coalition, okay. right? Where Bill Clinton gave that speech. I can't imagine Joe Biden today going to a Rainbow Coalition meeting or some other analogous organization. Right. And just launching an attack on the left wing of his party on these kind of identitarian cultural issues. It's it's impossible to fathom, frankly, I, as at I, this point. But
1: I don't think but I don't think it's going the this split is going to happen as a direct result of losing uh, uh, this time around or perhaps even the next time around, I think. We're talking about a generational shift, the kind the kind of difference between, you know, uh, George Bush's Republican Party and Donald Trump's many things have to rise and fall and change and be shaken up. And it, it will be in the aftermath of sort of some great unsettling uh, 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 catastrophe or a, a, who knows um, where a different generation of liberals, of Democrats emerge. And they kind of organically are drawn to an entirely different uh,
0: worldview. And it's not just Democrats, because you mentioned the Spanberger race in Virginia's (laughs) 7th District. This is a very interesting district because this was Eric Cantor's district. Eric Cantor was the whip Uh, was the number two guy in the house and was defeated in a primary in a Republican primary in a kind of proto Trump moment by this guy, Dave Bratt, who then isn't the Congressman anymore. Abigail Spanberger is. And, um, and Abigail Spanberger ran as a sort of moderate, non-crazy in that district and won and had, you know, won again in 2020 she is now facing a really interesting challenger and it's a toss-up race. So the challenger's name is Yesley Vega. She is the daughter of Salvadoran immigrants. She's uh, worked in law enforcement. She's, I think, 37 years old. And this is where, you know, if you pull back and people, you know, no one pulls back to 30,000 feet anymore in a historical sense um, because there's so every every possible argument you can make is kind of uh, anticipated on Twitter by the billions of people in the public square. So the Hispanic, the rise of Hispanic voters or the rise of a new Hispanic coalition in the Republican Party is by now almost an old story. It's like it was the story of the 2020 election in the midst of Trump's defeat. Um, but what we have here is, uh, you know, a... Um, somebody who should not by rights be a republican according to the identity politics people who is a republican who is going to get a lot of votes from a lot of you know like working class white people as a sal, as an as a as a as, a, as a, Salva- a kid of salvadoran immigrants this is reshuffling the deck of american politics it may take a decade it may it may halt in its tracks but um it's not just the Democratic Party that is changing. The Republican Party is changing also. And that's why politics is so, so interesting. I, I, posited, focus-
2: yeah, I posited in my first book in 2019, Unjust Social Justice and the Unmaking of America, that what killed the so, the uh, um, sister soldier moment is the very same voguish academic theories that gave us decarcerial policies, most specifically intersectionality which is an academic uh, gloss over a popular front belief. It erases distinctions between races, between classes, uh, and just creates this one monocultural struggle. Uh, So you can't jettison one sister soldier because you're jettisoning an entire group. And in fact, if you jettison one group, you're jettisoning all groups, which has created this weird prisoner's dilemma for the Democratic Party. And it is more a Democratic Party problem than it is a Republican Party. Maybe it won't be tomorrow, uh, as the Republican Party in its populist iteration leans more heavily into left-leaning political philosophy. But it's a Democratic Party problem now, and the person who can break that cycle has to come entirely from outside of it. That was supposed to be Joe Biden. Joe Biden was supposed to be that guy, silent generation guy, utterly detached from all these fashionable theories about how to reorganize society around a more equitable social contract. But he was captured by it, too. Well, because no, was, there, no, do you
3: think that's because of his age, or do you think it's because of deeper structural ideological
2: forces? Do you, do you just think he's too old I, I and think t- he's tired to- Yeah, yeah, I just I just don't think he has his hand on the on the tiller here. Well, also in this the is sense- autopilot administration, it's being run by the, what Josh Barrow calls, not affectionately, the groups. All of which have adopted a very, very similar popular front mentality because the ACLU does the same thing as the SEIU, which does the same thing as uh, Planned Parenthood. All the groups have one objective, which is everything and everything, everything and anything that is progressive.
1: But it's also in a sense because Biden is, um, by some definition, the very opposite of an outsider. He's not the he's. He's been in Democratic
2: politics. Right. So he while, knows how, how to float along. He knows how well, to float it, along in a wave.
4: But he also rejected some of the best policy he did as a senator, including on crime. He actually had to denounce that in order to satisfy the groups and in order to, to you know, rule, govern.
0: Look, if he's the ultimate insider, then look at it this way. He's, uh, you know. He's the kind of stumble bum administrator who got appointed the president of the university finally after, you know, 40 years. And they come to him and they say, you know, we need a black studies department. He's like, okay, you know, we need the gender. So, okay, you know, we're going to sit in in your office. you know, until you build a student center that white people can't go into. Okay. Cause like he all he wanted is to be all he wants to yeah, be. he's like, I'm to just happy to Oval be here. Office. I'm
4: just happy to be here, ladies yeah, and gentlemen. Just don't, take,
0: <laughs> just don't take it away from me. And they're like, you know, the best way for us not to take it away from you, spend six trillion dollars. Okay. That'll make you LBJ and FDR combined. Great. That sounds good. Let me have that. Oh, and let's pull out of Afghanistan too.
4: But that's. that's I really like sense. to do
0: that. I've been saying that for years. We should just pull out. Okay.
4: But, but that's the thing is like, he's not entirely passive here. I mean, there's a reason why a lot. I mean, the Afghanistan thing in particular was was he was proud to own that moment until the polls showed it was perhaps not the thing you want to own. Uh, but he yeah. he I think he does buy into some of these newfangled theories, in part to make himself seem less old. You know, he's when he starts to talk about any of the DEI type stuff, it's, it's kind of hilarious because it really is like watching your grandpa, you know, talk about TikTok or something. But he he's trying to buy into it. This is why he references his grandchildren a lot. That's when he starts invoking the grandchildren. So I think he believes some of it.
0: <laughs> um, There was a, a famous uh, conservative editorialist, I'm not going to say his name, uh, but people who worked for him uh, uh, would say that um, he had this way of, in, in editorial meetings, he would say I was talking to my wife, which is of course not particularly remarkable that a man would talk to his wife. But this meant that since his wife was just a sort of was was not a combatant in the world of ideas, he was about to cite the great wisdom of the American people or the voter. Because she they're sitting at breakfast and she says. I don't like that Bill Clinton, you know, or something like that. And then it's like, aha, you see, this is the opinion of the American. And there, I, I I'm actually, I'm so um, uh, crazy right now that I don't remember why this came into my head, uh, why I'm using this analogy to the to the editorialist. But, But I think it is this lack of, yeah, so Biden and his grandchildren, that's right. So it's like, I know three people under the age of 50. And here's what they tell me: their names are all Biden, so I now know what young people think i I mean, there is that quality there is it's like you know we we know what young people think because you know, I went to parents weekend. I now know what you know because I went to parents weekend at my daughter's college, so I now know what all young people in America think because I was around eighteen hundred liberal arts students at a you know at a at a new england uh at leafy New England college. I mean, there there is that also quality to the American uh, political conversation. It's always been there. There's less there's less excuse for it now that we can hear everybody's voice at the same time. But uh, but it's all there. Okay. So Jamie Kerchick, your book Secret City. Uh, yes. The hold on, I can't hidden, remember the...
3: the hidden history of Gay Washington.
0: Okay. Anyway, uh, fantastic page by page anecdotes stories you know horrifying stories hilarious stories uh, you know as juicy a book as you will read this year so uh, people should do that and then also subscribe to the Not Even Mad podcast and while you're buying Jamie's book you should buy Noah's book as you know The Rise of the New Puritans. if you haven't already both available with one click on your kindle i use apple books myself uh, only because it's hard to order books on the phone on your iphone i'm really like i now i sound like biden i've gone totally senile here okay it's uh thanks very much uh jamie and for abe <laughs> and christine have a great weekend everybody john putthorps keep the candle burning